Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and think about your word again, particularly thinking about the Christian life. And we feel this very acutely as we lead and pastor your people to be modelling ourselves the life of being a disciple and uh, teaching your people in a way that uh, does bring about that sacrificial life of dying to self and living for Christ. So help us today, to this end we ask, for your glory. Amen. Uh, so the, the discipleship was the, the topic I was given, so I've turned it into growing a culture of discipleship. So I've been thinking a lot about culture. It seems to be a bit of a buzzword uh, around our circles at the moment, church culture and culture change and so on. So I'm happy to talk about that. And, and uh, the subtitle is How to Not Bungle Discipleship. And uh, it's, it's what I'm thinking about at my own church, which is St George North Anglican Church, and the southern suburbs of Sydney. I'm not the pastor there. I'm not even formally on the team, but I work very closely with the, uh, the minister and uh, his team, uh, particularly in the whole uh, discipleship small groups area. And uh, these, are, these reflections today are very much what we're thinking about our, in our church. And for those of you who know the book Trellis and Vine that Tony and I wrote, uh, we're trying to put together a uh, follow-up project called Regrowth um, to, uh, to help those who want that kind of ministry mindset of trellis and vine to actually take the steps to get there. Because we've done a lot of workshops over the last five years and talked to pastors, uh, a lot of resonance with, yes, we want our churches to move into that kind of discipling, missional mode. Uh, I tend to be working more with established churches than with plants, and I think there are significant differences so some of what I say comes out of working in a well-established church rather than a plant. So you'll have to take these ideas for what they're worth in your context. Uh, but I think you're all three years and over, so the, the planting you've done is, uh, for some of you, maybe quite a number of years. It's no longer a plant, it's well-established. So they're live questions for me. I'll go to my grave, still working all this out. Um, I come up with a new diagram every year to try and describe it all. Uh, so here we go. All right. Um, Vine Growers is the ministry I set up to do all of this, which gives you a bit of a feel for it, renewing a culture of biblical discipleship from the ground up. Sorry. Yes, take... It's all right. You are welcome. Thank you. Did you get a... Good. Um, and these are the three things we're working on, and we're touching on some of them today, growing disciples who make disciples, churches with a dis- culture of disciple-making and growing the gospel to reach our communities. And the challenge I'm thinking about today is the, the maturity mission challenge of getting that right. So we want to reach our local communities and beyond with the gospel, but we want to have mature disciples who are growing, and we don't want to compromise on either. In some ways it's a tension, because we want to just keep, get people moving in mission and serving, but we don't want to do it in a way that compromises their own maturity because we actually know the the mission and service will come out of their maturity, will come out of their walk with Christ, their devotion to Christ. Love what Steve was saying before lunch uh, about the the heart of mission in 1 Corinthians 8, 9 and 10 there. Um, The love of the gospel, the love of people, the love of God, the glory of God, being willing to be mission-minded, whoever we are, and calling the whole church to be mission-minded. And they're not separate, are they? You can't can't be a mature Christian without being mission-minded. That's what we're saying in our context. That's what we believe from the Scriptures. And the mission won't happen unless there are mature people. So 
it, it's a, a creative tension, not a destructive tension. We, we're trying this uh, complex diagram, it's my uh, latest diagram, to try and describe regrowth, which is something we have to publish through Matthias Media. And I'm just giving you this, you this overview. Today we're actually just going to talk about this, clarifying what ministry culture, what discipleship looks like in a church. But I wanted to give you uh, just a feel for this hopefully future product and, and just some of the rationale of it that uh, culture is resistant, culture is difficult to change in any organisation, any society, the same in the church. Uh, the beauty about thinking about culture is it starts with convictions. It starts with, uh, this is the same in business or society or any group of people if you want to change the culture. It is shaped by the underlying beliefs and worldview and convictions and understandings uh, of that group of people. And so for Christ Church, we are given those convictions, we are given... Uh, the, our understanding of who we are, who we are in Christ, uh, what the world is, what God is doing in the world. We don't have to make it up. Um, but is our whole church being driven by uh, God's purposes for his people and for his church is, is the big question. So we need to, in, in this process of culture change, whatever stage your church is at, uh, clarifying what discipleship is, what ministry is, what the church should look like biblically is where it all starts. I'm going to show you this little outline on uh, discipleship uh, that we've been using in some of our small groups. But after, after this kind of thinking, you then need to diagnose where your church is at in relation to the biblical culture that you have discerned should be there. And that's a whole uh, creating urgency through honest evaluation, that diagnostic process. I think as a church you've got to set a destination. Some would argue against this in terms of you, know, you just let God do what he wants to do. But I think you do need to be aware of the people groups in your, in your district that you're trying to reach and who are the ones you're particularly targeting. Uh, I'm not pushing for the homogeneous unit principle that you've just got to reach a particular group. It never works out that way anyway because they always invite friends from some other people group and mess the whole thing up. <laughs> Um, but have some clear targets, even numerical targets, that we'd like to double the size of our church or plant another church in the next five years. But have some destination in mind. Come and join us. There's some notes there Thank on the way in. Um, and, and this process you don't do all the time. The blue circles you might do every three or four years or something like that. Uh, but once you've set that process, this stuff goes on all the time. You and your team and members need to model a culture. Your small groups need to model a culture. If, if, if the, the culture of ministry in the Christian life you've discerned here through the Bible is not reflected in all that you do, like in small groups, it'll never catch on. Um, you need a process of ongoing communication of the vision and culture of your church and where you are going. You need to equip leaders in line with that all the different kinds of leaders and, and uh, both uh, those who might join your staff but also the volunteer leaders, Bible study leaders, all those kinds of people, women's leaders, uh, and then design some pathways to take people uh, through the process of becoming a Christian and growing as a Christian. I use the E's. I think I learned them in the Navigators probably years ago. I can't remember now. Um, uh, engaging people, evangelising, uh, establishing equipping and exporting. Um, that's my version of the M's. Or well, the M's are the version of the E's, okay? I think the E's are better. And you can tell me that. 
Because it it takes a person from being not not a Christian whom we engage with in relationship and love and serve to bringing the gospel to them under the evangelism E, to establishing them in Christ and in the church, equipping them to serve, to be disciple makers, to pass on the gospel to others, to lead in church and so forth, and then exporting some to start new ministries around the world or in the next suburb. So I like the E's, but anyway. Um, and the whole thing is built around us teaching the word, the whole thing. And, and that just goes on and on, just working away at that year after year. But building momentum is a bit vague, even in my mind it's still a bit vague, but you've got to have some clear units of growth. So what is it you're going to try and grow this year to grow the gospel? Are we going to start three new Bible study groups? Or are we heading toward a church plant in three years' time? Or uh, is, is there a... Um, um, a particular people group that we need to gear up and try and reach. So you need some very clear objectives here to work on to keep the momentum going. Uh, and you keep the momentum going by rehearsing this all the time, particularly with your leaders. So that's just a, a, a quick overview on that. Does any of that make sense in terms of... It's the first time I've used this diagram in public and uh, you can see my keynote uh, abilities are very limited. Um, but does it make sense as a change process? Do you have questions about it? Why did you say the fight there? Sorry? Why is it say the fight? I'm going to show you that in a minute. That's a, just a description of discipleship. Yeah. So you'll see that in a moment. Yep. So if you said to build momentum, does that basically just kind of stick at it? It's sticking at it, but having some plans to... To get new leaders doing new things, starting new things. So if you've got a, for example, a very, uh, in the pathways, if you've got very stable small groups that never actually multiply new groups, you won't have any momentum. So the goal this year could be, let's start through, next year, let's start three new Bible study groups, whatever you're going to call them, um, in your area. And so we're going to train six new leaders to lead them. So it's having that kind of momentum built into it. Otherwise, it can stagnate. Yeah. And Bob, you said three to four years for the bottom section. So it's it's going to be different to your yearly review of your plans. Like your yearly review still fits in the top part, does it? Or I do a yearly review on the blue part, the blue? but not. But if you're changing everything every yeah. year, okay. you just confuse everybody. Yeah. But you need to sharpen it up and say, oh, we we came up with this set of principles in terms of what the Christian life looks like, what the ministry looks like, what the church looks like back here. Uh, let's stick with that unless God's given us new light somewhere or something. And there is, there is growth there and sharpening there all the time. Um, and we need to keep checking, looking at our whole ministry as leaders and pastors uh, to see that, that what we're doing is in line with those convictions at every level. Um, and the churches I'm working with, which have usually been going for 50 years or so, there's a lot of misalignment. What's going on doesn't actually fit with what they believe. Not heretical stuff. I'm working with good churches, but stuff that just doesn't work in terms of growing people or getting new people on board. Used to work, doesn't work anymore. Um, and then if you're always resetting the destination, it just confuses people. So I think there's some distinction there between the blue and the brown. <laughs> yeah. What I understood the first time through wasn't what I just caught. So um, what, what I just caught from you on the building momentum is more like the, the, the vision development. Yeah. So it's almost like the blue line, but it's for the people who are already involved in the process. Yeah, yeah. 
and, and helping them do that. And, and sometimes it can be you know, physical buildings of actually working out to, to get growth happening. Where are we going to move to? What are we going to build? So it's, we don't face those kind of realities here. It may be more down in the blue. You may be right. But, uh, but you've got some people who are in the cycle who are always going yeah. through it. There is. Yes. But you're trying to bring more people into yeah. it. Yeah, and this it's one different here, than communicating your vision up top. It's different to that, yeah. But, yeah. And any new leaders, whether it's staff or lay leaders or Bible study leaders, they yeah. need to know, they don't necessarily go through the whole process making it up. They need to know how you think as a church. Mm-hmm. So that what they're doing is of the line. Yeah. Now we're going to do a very limited part of that today. Um, I've got one little statement for you on ministry culture. Um, culture is our theological DNA. Culture is a good concept for churches and Christians because we, we start with convictions. Um, our theological DNA, DNA, that is the deeply shared beliefs that underpin all that we do. But culture is also the practices, habits, systems, relationships, activities and symbols that express and propagate those underlying beliefs. It's not simply the ideas or convictions, it's expression of those ideas, often quite deep ideas we aren't even aware of having accepted into a web of practices and forms. The reason it takes a while and some work and prayer and Bible to change culture is because culture is resistant and it's expressed in these activities and patterns and habits that we're not even aware of. We probably The bit we didn't get to in the previous workshop was uh, applying what I'm going to say today uh, about discipleship to every aspect of church life. It's got to flow through everywhere. Discipleship is not one little section of church life. It's actually got to permeate because of the nature of culture. Um, so if, if discipleship, as we understand it from scriptures, is not core to our small groups, there's no way it's going to catch on in church. Um, we may preach about it, talk about it, rant about it, harangue people about it. It's, if it's not reflected in our men's groups, our women's groups and so on, um, I'll show you what I mean by discipleship in a minute, then it won't happen. That makes sense. Just a, just a quick little grab on, on culture there. Um, now, so what we're going to do now for the rest of the time is just work on that first. If you go back to the first page, just clarifying the culture, just that bit there. Okay. So I've given you a framework that we're thinking about, maybe useful um, as a bigger framework. Um, now there are myths about discipleship, but I want I want to disabuse you of straight away. Discipleship is a second stage of Christian experience after conversion. You can be a Christian but not a disciple. So we hear people say, I became a Christian 10 years ago, but I only discipled last year. That's got to be nonsense, right? I know what they mean. Someone read the Bible with them. They did good things with them. But we mustn't have any language or understandings of discipleship that imply two stages of being Christian or two levels of Christian or whatever. That's not a biblical way of thinking. Um... Discipleship is only for the super-Christian, which is a bit like, a bit like the first one, the, the missionary, the sacrificial one, but this whole conference is about, what's it called? Sacrifice, sacrificial ministry. That's, that's not just for ministers, that's for disciples. Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, uh, present your bodies as living sacrifices. That's the normal Christian life. It's not the super-Christian. Uh, it's a ministry method, so I'm doing discipleship because I'm running a small group, I'm doing discipleship because I'm meeting one-to-one. That's because Jesus did it. Um, we did it one to one, he did it one to twelve, so anything like that. Big crowds he wasn't discipling. Well, that's nonsense. Of course he was discipling the crowds. 
He's preaching to the crowds, calling them to follow. Some did, some didn't. The Gospels are not there to teach us a ministry method. You're not, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff around on discipleship that, that implies that it's only when you're intensely with a few that you're doing discipleship. It is not biblical. Okay, So get that one out of your head. I can see you, you, uh, you've already worked these out. Uh, it's not just when you're in this personal accountability, person-to-person, sharing failures about the quiet time and all that kind of thing, that you're doing discipleship. Uh, it, it, uh, another myth is that because of these other ones, that preaching, when you've got 30 or 40 or 100 in front of you, that can't be discipleship because it's not personal enough. There's no accountability. I don't know them and we're not sharing our lives openly and somehow that's not discipleship. Of course Steve was discipling us today and Gary. Uh, they're preaching the word. Matthew 28, how do you make disciples? By teaching. Teaching people everything that Jesus taught us to obey. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's a thousand or one. Um, related, this discipleship is practical, so um, doctrine is the, the, um, the theoretical bit, and discipleship is when you put it into practice, which is a, a wrong um, bifurcation, isn't it? A, a, a wrong, uh, I don't think of the word, uh, distinction. Um, because how do you grow in the knowledge of God? How, how do you grow in living a worthy life? Philippians 1, Colossians 1, by growth in the knowledge of God. You can't separate doctrine from discipleship. There's some discipleship ministers, sort of like the dumbing down bit, you know, just when you get right down to the... And I'm happy for that, for the new Christian, to learn the basics of the Christian walk. Um, but if you do a theological degree, uh, or go to theological classes over the next year, they, it's, you are being discipled by that knowledge. It's not as if that's not discipling. Um, I, I got more sympathy with the last one, because there is a... a, a uh, <clears throat> a body of Christ with different gifts and not all the gifts and word gifts. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but uh, I'm going to argue that the heart of making disciples should be in everybody. There's, there's some myths you can think about. I'm not going to discuss them. We haven't got time, but just put them on the table for you. So the truths are very simple, I think. A disciple is a learner of Christ and discipleship is the consequence of learning Christ. <coughs> um, you know that, don't you? You know that from some of your early Christian life, that the disciple is a learner. And um, did you get some notes there? On there? There's more up here if you need them. Everyone got notes? Yep. Disciple is a learner, a student, a pupil, uh, but also an adherent. It was more than just learning. The, the, the way the language was used in the Greek culture in the first century was um, not just learning intellectually but following the way of the master and so Jesus came in that tradition in one sense as the the capital M master calling followers uh, to follow him it was also part of Jewish thinking as well Um, just show you quickly some references to learning Christ it's a a lovely idea I've been thinking about this past week what does it mean to learn Christ Uh, get your Bibles out Matthew um, um, 10 it just shows the the, um, the connection between uh, the disciple being both a learner and an, an adherent. Matthew 10, 24. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and for the servant to be like his master. Um, it's more, the, the word student there in the NIV is just the word disciple. Uh, the Holman has disciple. 
um, and, and when you are being taught and learning uh, from your master, then you are like your master, and in this case, like your master in terms of suffering and persecution, uh, death. Learning Christ leads to death, is what's being said in this whole passage, actually. Um, but learning Christ leads to life. Turn over to chapter 11, Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Isn't that a wonderful way to preach the gospel that we have from Jesus? Everyone that we are trying to bring to Christ is burdened in this wearisome world. You may be feeling it right now, not just physical weary, but doubt and affliction and suffering, and it's just hard life. And here's the call of the gospel again to the only one who can bring rest to the weary. Um, I've been challenged recently that we don't always start with you are a sinner. Okay? Uh, we can start with people by pointing out the glories of God and who God is, but talk about the, the hard life it is living in this world. That's where Jesus started here. Come to me because I'll give you rest. Because the whole of the gospel, as expanded by Matthew and all of the other writers, uh, tells us the way he gives rest is by uh, dealing with sin, by creating the possibility of a new life. Uh, but here he starts with learning of him. And if you go back quickly, I'll give you one more reference to learning. Isaiah 50 is the background to Matthew 11. My wife Jackie pointed this out to me recently, and uh, she'd be very disappointed if I don't pass it on to you. Uh, Isaiah 50 verses 4 and 5 The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Uh, This is the servant whom Jesus became. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. So the one speaking is also the one being taught, the servant. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I've not been rebellious. I've not drawn back. I've offered my back to those who beat me. It immediately goes on to affliction, to death. So the the servant learning, the servant speaking, led to the servant's death. We see it in Christ. And therefore, naturally, uh, um, we, we see it in the life of the disciple. It's the pattern of learning leads to death leads to life. Matthew 16. It's the other one, isn't it? Just point it out quickly. So these are the consequences of learning. I I won't read it to you because we're running out of time, but if you look at Matthew 16, 13 to the end there, what did they learn of Christ? They learned he was the Messiah, that he was died, he was going to live, and he was being raised to life. The consequences were that they were to give up their life, deny themselves, find life, uh, and in finding that life, they were going to be persecuted. So here's, here's the pattern. The disciple was a learner of Christ, and discipleship, or learnership, if you like, because discipleship's not a biblical word, um, Learnership is the consequence of learning Christ. So where does it all start? It's teaching Christ, learning Christ, and all the implications that flow out of that. 
That's what discipleship is. So Colossians... Think, just think of the book of Colossians for a minute. You've got the first two chapters all about Christ, his uh, create, creator, sustainer, redeemer, um, the, the, uh, the work of, of the cross in saving, um, and then the, uh, we're, we're to continue in him, as you have been taught at the beginning of chapter 2, and then chapter 3, you've been raised with Christ, this is who you are, set your affection on things above where he is Lord, and now all the consequences flow out. Colossians is a book on discipleship. You learn Christ in chapters 1 and 2. You also learn how not to think of Christ in chapter 2. And then chapters 3 and 4 show the consequences. My, this is my simplest I can get in my head as to what discipleship is. Learning Christ and learning the consequences and then living that out. Which is everything. So the Christian, the discipleship is everything. Discipleship is, is a, a major way, not the only way, of holding together in our heads the shape of the Christian life and the Christian church and Christian ministry. It's a key way of thinking about it. We could talk about holiness, we could talk about godliness, we could talk about the glory of God. There's, there's other ways of talking about it, but discipleship's an important one. All right? Um, let me move on to uh, these objections that come up. Should those who learn Christ speak of Christ? See, do we want all disciples to make disciples? Is, is this part of the Christian vision, or are we going a step beyond that you can be a disciple without speaking of Christ? I don't think so. Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. 1 Corinthians 12 says, You can't confess that Christ is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5 says, if you have the Spirit, you'll sing of Christ, you'll speak of Christ. Learning Christ, following Christ, receiving the Spirit, receiving life, means you are a speaker. It doesn't mean you're all evangelists, it doesn't mean you've got the same gifts, but it's an anomaly to have a, a, a disciple who doesn't speak. If that's true, that has big implications for the way we teach and the way we run our groups and the way we run Sunday, and all kinds of things come out of that. I don't know whether you agree with me on that one. Then these other questions. Is it a corporate mission to make disciples rather than for each individual disciple? I get, keep being pushed on that all the time. Uh, Jesus was speaking to the twelve, not to them individually, but to the twelve as a group, as a prototype of the whole church, if you like. So it's the whole church because it's a body. We all have different gifts, which is true. So don't tell every Christian to be speaking and trying to make disciples or to encourage others. It's the whole church does it. And, and, and there's a great truth in that, the body life, isn't it? And not all the gifts are word gifts. What about miracles? What about healings? There are other gifts that are not word gifts. And we do it corporately on Sunday. We do it corporately in our small groups. But if the individual is thinking everyone else is doing it, we're doing it corporately, no one's going to be doing it. <laughs> I think at least in the, maybe quite different in church plants, actually. And in fact, I'm sure it is. The churches I'm working with in my coaching work tend to be established churches, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. And everyone's gone pretty quiet. Only a few people are speaking on Sunday and running a group. And, you know, there's uh, one or two maybe quite evangelistic, but the others are very quiet, very passive. So I'm working in that sort of context. I think what happens at church plants, you end up both grabbing the ones who want to get on the front foot as disciple-makers, but the whole environment, the whole culture is... If we don't, we're not all out there making friends and talking to people, it's not going to happen. <laughs> and, and 
the older your church gets, you're going to become like the ones I'm working with, the really faithful gospel churches, but very low expectations in terms of the members uh, engaging others. And I don't mean that every church member and every disciple is good at personal evangelism, but everyone can buy a book for a non-Christian. My neighbour just sent me another book. I've got to go and see him this week about economics and Christianity because we swap books. Anyone can do that. Uh, I can talk to him. I, I have some abilities to talk to him. But um, we can send cards. We can send links to people. So there's all kinds of creative ways, uh, more so in our modern world, for the very introverted, the very shy disciple to have a heart for others and to be passing on the word of God to others. One of the key ways, I think, is teaching them to talk to each other in their Bible study groups and in church to encourage each other with the word. So when they with someone after church who's just been diagnosed with cancer, oh, I hope you haven't, sometimes you say that to someone in the room, um, that our members know how to read the word, just sit over in a corner after church and open the word and pray with them if it's appropriate at that moment, rather than, oh, that's the pastor's job. All of that is disciple making. Okay. Um, now I've been sending this stuff to John Woodhouse to tell me how crazy I am. And he wrote back to me the other day. I have a bit of a feeling that there's a lack of clarity about whether you are saying that every disciple should be actively speaking the gospel word to other people, thus making disciples, or two, every disciple must be doing something towards the making of disciples, playing some role in the great disciple making mission. Uh, mostly I thought it is the first which would be clear. If it is the second, then I'm wondering whether my prayers for missionaries are enough or my giving to ministry or whatever. Is it only word work that counts as disciple-making? Is it only person-to-person work that counts? So I sent all this stuff to John because he's, he's such a clear thinker uh, and he wants all of this, but he'll ask the hard questions. Now, I don't want to analyse all that. Now, the previous group thought John wasn't clear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the, he's running around with two or three ideas there. But you see the question you've got to answer. And you know how I had down here uh, in that uh, bottom square, clarify the culture? If you're fuzzy on this, what's fog in the, in the pulpit that's going to be missed in the pews? Or in two ways, you know, I uh, if I'm not clear leading ministry in what the Christian life looks like, it's going to be fuzzy out there. I don't want to have too high a bar that's legalistic and, and um, um, oppressive to people. I don't want to have too low a bar, which is just fitting into our comfortable sort of suburban churches. So keep reading, thinking about the Christian life, thinking about discipleship. What does it mean to learn Christ? What are the consequences? I would argue the consequences are we, we, we have a heart of love for Christ and the gospel, and even those the most introverted, uh, the most needy, even the most suffering, those who, who need comforting, are going to end up saying something. Because of the Spirit and because of the comfort they've received, the thankfulness they have. In fact, I talk to some friends in, in the missional communities and, and uh, disciple-making movements. They can't believe that I have to argue this stuff in the churches I work in. Why do you have to spend so much time persuading disciples to make disciples? They cannot believe that we have to, have to talk about it so much. But somehow in our established churches, across the board and in all the denominations, there's a, there's a movement still to be done in terms of getting the, the members of our churches on the front foot making disciples. Any, any general comments on that? Just on that, uh, on that rant? Questions? Thoughts in your context?
on this whole proposition of, of uh, disciples making disciples. I think some people are even back a step further than that. Of their, their faith is just personal, and why would I even interact with someone else on that? Yeah, right. yeah. So it's even one more. Yes. Worse. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. In your just in your experience, is there is there a sense in which if you if you get them just after they converted, mm. you, that's that's the time to really get this. Yep. Once yep. you've made it a habit over thirty years of a Christian walk to just mm. shut up. Yes. It's difficult to break out of that. It is. I'm finding that with the young Christians I'm following up at the moment. Yeah. But if they're in a church culture, which is a good church, Bible teaching church, missions on the agenda, and the culture is not disciples making disciples, to use that, that uh, catchphrase, um, it'll be squeezed out of them. So the culture will shape them. Yes. Yeah. So we've got to keep teaching biblically what the Christian life looks like, encouraging those who are new and fresh, but somehow reawakening I've got, I've got a thing I'm going to share with you at the end. I think it's one of the keys to reawakening established faithful Christians to be disciple makers. We'll come back to that at the end. Yeah. I think about this a lot because of the churches I work in. Really good churches, my own church. But just that, especially from about the 30s, 35 on, 30 on when you've got lots of responsibilities, not as much discretionary time, you're not in these exciting youth groups and university groups and college groups and so on. How do you keep going from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s um, in disciples making disciples? That's what I'm wrestling with, yeah. But the new Christian gets it. They, they can't believe you have to talk about it. <laughs> but then as the, as the, I call it the, the, the trainer, you're always going to make sure you nab them and nab them. Yeah, yeah. And get alongside them. Yeah. yeah. And train them, that's right. Yeah. And sometimes they'll say to me anyway, they'll say, how, how come there's some resistance to doing door knocking resistance to taking some guys up to the pub and shit. What, what's that all about? They don't get it. When the longer term members, who are very faithful, uh, don't share the same passion. I'm glad I'm doing the work I do because I'd be a wreck hypocrite if I didn't, didn't do something for myself. But I could feel in myself in my bones, be much easier not to have a, a culture of disciples making disciples. Life would be much simpler. I'd have much less angst and worry about people and all kinds of things. So I'm glad I'm in an environment where the culture I'm in is pushing me to do it. Yeah. I don't know if it's just an Australian thing, but there's this unwritten mindset uh, that the ministers that I paid for. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. yeah, I think. So my responsibility to ministers is significantly more than I'm not paid for this. Yes, fair enough. Certainly our accountability is. Mm. Yeah, we, we, there's so many good things from our reformed evangelical tradition of the pastoral ministry. I don't want to lose any of that, but we, we've got to drive the ministry down into the pews, into the congregation, without losing any of that eldership, uh, biblical eldership and um, pastoral ministry. Yeah. But um, if, it, if we're not seeing disciples making disciples as part of our, our church culture and Christian life culture, we've got to think, think then... What are they hearing from our preaching? What is it that we're not saying? Or, or what is it about our, our activities and habits and patterns and symbols and communications that's reinforcing another culture different to what I'm preaching? That's the culture change kind of question, which we won't quite get to today, given we've only got 15 minutes left. But um, we'll see how far we get.
I'll leave you to do the, um, the little exercise I use with churches when I'm coaching them on page um, th- three. The previous group in here before afternoon tea didn't like these questions particularly because they sounded so... Um, I'm being so hard on the top group. Here's what people might say uh, in a church that doesn't have a disciple-making culture. They thought, oh, I wouldn't mind a church full of people like that. They're willing to serve and they're uh, coming to church and attending Bible study and uh, it's all right to receive support from friends. But what's missing in that top lot, you can have a think about, is that passing on of Christ. I'm learning Christ, I'm there, I'm serving, just not telling kind of thing. Um, and we'd all love a church full of the, the bottom lot. Um, but you might want to use that with your team sometime. Just So we're, we're, here's two sets of statements that Cole made up out of his head. Uh, where, do you, where do you think we are? What's our trajectory as a church? And it'll be mixed. And um, if you think, well, there's a few people like in that bottom set of statements, but mostly at the top, then you've got work to do. Um, and you may add other things in and take other things out. So... They're just some practical things I think you should be seeing because culture is the convictions being worked out in practice. So these, these sentences are meant to describe what practices could look like um, if you don't and do have a disciple making disciples culture. Okay? So that's the purpose of that exercise which we can't quite do now but you can use if you want. Um, in, in um, um, Trellis and Vine, the book Tony and I wrote a while ago, uh, I won't read this now, but we described describe it as a Bible reading movement. Try and get a Bible reading movement with people in all kinds of different ways uh, opening the word with each other. I think that's the key, opening the word and praying with each other. My wife's really good at it. She goes to the neighbours and she'll pray with them and share a scripture with them. And something came up the other night. Oh, with my daughter, actually, yeah. And she's just thinking, what verse can I send her? And she's always thinking what verses to send. And, and uh, she's actually very good at doing it person to person. But she thinks of all kinds of creative ways of just passing on the word because of her deep conviction, deeper than mine actually, that the word's going to work. So um, it's fun being married to Jackie. She, she helps me with all of this. Sets, she, she runs the culture of our family in terms of discipleship. So. Um, and she'd be embarrassed. For me to say that, but anyway. Oh, yeah. Just back on that, I yeah. Just read that yeah. Um, in the session to speak to Ms. Summerman, something that might have been there in the last collective, um, there was a question asked about uh, people who aren't great readers. Yes, yes. I was just wondering if you have any comments. Yes, yes, I've got people I'm working with, some of my extended family who are not great readers. There's audio stuff, I'm trying to get them to listen to stuff. One of the, one of the guys I'm talking to, he said, oh, I get on the train in the morning and I. I uh, catch up on TV shows and something. No! Get him, get him some sermons to listen to. He's not a reader. He's very academic. He just doesn't read. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, and one of the guys in our team I'm about to show you is like that. He's a professor of medicine. Just doesn't read anything apart from sports books. So after a while I just give up. But get them audio stuff. Challenge them to read. You, you cannot be a growing disciple. Certainly obviously without reading the Bible, but also reading theology, reading Christian books. So it's a huge issue. Yeah. But there are other technologies now. 
They also need to challenge because they do read their sports magazines and car magazines or whatever they're interested in. They do read. It's just a whole set of priorities. And, the, and we haven't shown them what to read. Here's a cultural thing, you see. Yeah. If you don't, if you, I'll put it in the positive, if you have a bookstall at church where you guys have chosen uh, the key books for people to read over you know, four or five year period and you're constantly reviewing them and giving examples and church members are jumping up. See, those little habits and symbols and patterns, they're all, a lot of it's unspoken, just having it there. But it's creating a culture of deep thinking about the Christian life, about God, about the glory of God, thinking theologically, thinking practically, just by having an effective book-reading kind of culture in your church. So this is an example of culture building, or not culture building, just in that. Okay. Like we used to at St Thomas's, didn't we? Well, St Thomas's is a big reading church. Yeah, yeah. The context that I'm That's a different thing. Yeah, so it's quite different. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm struggling to put my St. Thomas's experience yeah, in yeah. what does... And even what I'm saying, yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah, reading Bible like yeah. these yeah. people. Which I, I do, I just I read, but yeah. I also tell stories. But I, I'm still trying to... Yeah, and it's a missiological question at that point, isn't it? How to, how to bring the gospel to those cultures without English as the first language. And do you... A lot of the disciple-making movements are using story forms... Yeah to tell the gospel and, and, and teaching young Christians and I really appreciate this how to tell the same story to their family members from um, there's one series in Luke I think where they learn seven stories the T for T movement yeah and um, yeah yeah there's a book on the book tab on Netflix called Teaching the Bible to People You Don't Read good it's written well, by I, a couple I don't really agree I need that uh, with some of the guys I work with What's it called? Teaching the Bible to... I think it's that. Very helpful. Look, there's only a few minutes left. I just want to show you a couple of other things. Um, now, in, in terms of um, uh, some practical things I've done in St George North recently with Phil Colgan's a minister, he's been very happy to do all this with me. Phil's done it with me. Uh, is to, in our case, grab some men. We want to change the culture of our small groups to be more like disciple-making teams. So how do you do that? Well, you can uh, rant and rave up the front about we, we need to have more mission into our Bible study groups and things like that, um, which we didn't do. Uh, Phil's a wise man. Uh, we just, uh, for three years now, we've uh, grabbed some men and now some women are doing it as well and, uh, and, and just uh, gradually evolved the small group idea to be a mission team or a disciple-making team idea. And, and, and all along different spectrums and so on. And the men have used this uh, uh, summary of the fight, which is not everything, but it's not a bad... Women can enjoy it too, so women like to fight. Uh, certainly a biblical image of um, the Christian life as a fight, and the flesh versus the devil, and the great cosmic battle between uh, the devil and Christ and everything. In Philippians 1, about contending for the gospel and all that kind of... Um, way of thinking about the Christian life. Feeding, imploring, growing, hoping, telling kind of speaks for itself. Uh, got some notes there on your, on your page um, uh, four. Uh, what are we learning? Going back to learning is the key. 
I've drawn it that way so the feeding feeds everything. It starts with learning Christ, which will feed into our, play, our prayers, our pouring. I like it really pouring. Begging, it's serious praying. It's not just saying prayers. Um, and then growing is the changing, obeying, teaching to obey. It's not just learning information, uh, but growing, repenting, every day dying to self um, helping is the whole service, being a servant, having a servant heart in the home. Great thing for men to learn. Um, in the community, um, pointing out to the men, or getting the men to think about the single mums and widows and so on in the church so they can mow the lawns of, and just just thinking of themselves as servants. And, um, and one of the things the men really latched on to was learning to talk to people at church, sort of the combination of helping and telling to talk to people at church at morning tea and talk to people they don't normally talk to and to find out uh, their testimony and, and to um, uh, specifically be talking and getting to know the men who are fringe in our church who come with their Christian wives but the men are probably not converted yet some of them clearly not converted um, and making a real effort as to who they talk to because one of the one of the things we I find uh, is that if we haven't taught uh, Christian disciples to talk to each other about Christ and the Bible, they're not going to tell the neighbour. So practice almost like practicing with each other, they're out of love for each other. So learning to talk about the sermon and, and share the scriptures with each other uh, and, and to pray and, and read the Bible with someone who's in distress after church because of their sickness or whatever it might be. Um, if they're not doing that with their Christian brothers and sisters, they're going to find it really hard to do it with their non-Christian neighbour. Um, and then we, in the teams we ran, because we invited the men into these disciple-making teams, uh, we did some specific things together to tell non-Christians. So we had a prayer list of about 35 men we were praying for regularly. We'd invite them uh, to various nights in the local pub to come and meet us as a group and hear our testimonies and uh, sometimes give a Bible talk or a short gospel talk to them. Um, haven't seen anyone converted from those 35 as yet, but uh, it was a great effect on the men who were used to really, they were used to really good Bible study groups in this good church that they're part of, but they'd never thought of mission flowing out from the group. Um, so we just tried some fairly gentle things. Uh, they agreed to come, some of them came door knocking, some of them came down to the local train station to meet people. Just, um, it, you know, it's not a cult, so that it wasn't obligatory, uh, but the pressure was on. Uh, so was this, was this a separate kind of group? Yeah, it was just part of the Bible study system. But it was a, a separate group that met and you said, OK, we're going to look at these. Yeah, different. yeah, these kinds of things, yeah. Each week you go, oh, let's look at F today. No, no, we just ran, it wasn't like that, sorry. Uh, it's um, quite a bit to explain anyway, but it looked like a pretty normal Bible study group. We just go through sometimes just following the sermon series in Romans. and yep. But the prayer time then was um, helping them apply what they've learnt and pray about what they've learnt in the Bible through the sermon, through the discussion of their own life. And the prayer time spilled over to praying for their kids, praying for their wives, praying for non-Christians, praying for mission generally. Uh, so it just had that edge to it. It wasn't broken up like that in the so night. So they didn't actually know that was going on. That was just. I, I showed them that on in the third year. Yeah, uh, exciting. Made it up in the third year, <laughs> but, but it had been going on all, all the way. 
Yes. Okay. And he came up with that diagram um, with all its limitations in year three. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. And about ten, about 30, 30 men have probably gone through these one or two years with us doing that. And the idea, it slowly worked, that the other groups have now imbibed some of the culture of being mission teams or disciple-making teams. And we changed the language from Bible study or home group to gospel team. Um, and we keep slipping back to home group. But we keep... Language is actually important to have um, the language that reflects discipleship. And Bible study groups are great name, or Bible and prayer groups, but it is in, more inward looking. It doesn't have any sense of mission to others. Um, Herdy Andrew Ertram, he thinks I'm loading too much up on Bible study groups and gospel teams, but I think aspirationally you want you want disciples to be moving in this direction of making disciples, so you want your groups to be doing that. And even if the groups are starting back here and the leaders need to sort of relearn some stuff, then let's just gradually teach them until they're heading in that kind of direction. And um, after three years or three or four years of these kinds of teams, I feel like I'm still <coughs> at uh, 0.2 out of 10. You know, it's much more we can do together. So it's an aspiration rather than getting this perfect model all worked out and then getting frustrated that no one's got the time to do it. <laughs> Uh, the same with leaders and Andrew and the team here are terrific you want to learn from them the guys that run the, the leadership training how they start with very young leaders and gradually move them forward year by year and they do have an aspirational kind of model as to what their groups are going to look like I think I'm putting more in admission than they would in their groups but probably not a lot of difference um, so that's just a little one way of just summarising the Christian life and what you're doing I think that in the feeding one, just picking off that one, oh, there's the team. Did I show you that one? Is this uh, one of the one of the teams? You had to be bald or reasonably bald. Was <laughs> 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 the criteria? <laughs> uh, I think he's only a couple of guys with hair there. I don't know what that was. We used to laugh at each other. Yeah, the medical professor is not there. Um, so learning to feed. Uh, you know those texts, aren't you? Feeding on the word. And I think, you know how you, with some churches and some disciples, you, you're preaching your heart out and you've got good groups running, and, but there's just a stagnation. We feel it sometimes in our own life, and they feel it just in growing in Christ and knowing Christ and being fired up with Christ. I wonder whether meditation's the, the key. And um, I'm thinking about this last week. Um, Sort of in relation to this workshop, uh, Alan Chappell's written that book. I've got. Um, I'm just going to leave this with you now. On true devotion in search of authentic spirituality, he's a great scholar and um, Christian pastor. Um, I've known him in Perth. I don't know whether he grew up in Perth, uh, but he helped to start the Perth College years ago. Was the first principal, um, and he just published this book last year. Um, and I, I put some quotes there for you, uh, but just think about meditation. In, in our, see, it's learning. Discipleship is about learning, not just getting information. So, in all of our contexts, and I put the context over the page there. Uh, 
church gathering, preaching, small groups, discipling in the home, one-to-one discipling, example of church leaders, having a bookstore. That's why I was thinking about bookstores before. Um, how can we make sure it really is a culture of learning and feeding? And uh, it's quite a long book, Alan, Alan's book, and he uh, interacts with the, Purit- the reformers, the reformers and the Puritans, and he critiques the mystical forms of meditation that have come into the church, both then and now, and then puts the gospel, like that first quote there, true devotion of spirituality is shaped and directed by the Bible. He's focused and grounded upon Jesus Christ, for he is the centre and the meaning of all. So that's his thesis, if you like. It's a gospel-centred, which is exactly the same as discipleship. That's what we're saying. Learning Christ in order to follow Christ uh, through the gospel. Um, and then just some statements I picked out on why. Uh, what makes meditation so important is a simple fact that it means paying proper attention to God. I know my own Bible reading. I'm often not feeding. I'm often not nurturing. Since I was reading this last week, even this morning, I thought, okay, I'm going to do this workshop. So I've got to feed on the Word and ask questions and preach to myself. That's really quite refreshing. Um, it's better to hear one sermon only and meditate on that than to hear two sermons and meditate on another. Somewhere. Um down under the white. Meditation is preaching to myself, which is what the Puritans did. The Puritans got very intense about it. It drives me nuts sometimes. Um, but uh, the Psalms do that, like Psalm 42. And you meditate on the Word, the works and the worth of God, and, and so on. How do you do it? Well, it's very much like the way we run Bible studies, asking questions. But So, what would it look like if you're trying to build feeding in, in a really uh, uh, healthy Digestion, meditation into your church life corporately, what would that do to your preaching? What would that do to after you preach? What would that do to the whole church service, the, the liturgy and so on? And what we put into church and how we read the Bible. See, one of the things reading the Bible, we, our church does this uh, uh, sometimes to my frustration. People come up and read the Bible, they don't give us a question to think about before we read the Bible. But if you give a question, uh, that just grabs people's attention. As we read, think about, well, you don't have to do it every week, but just a little thing like that can teach what feeding on the word means. And feeding on the word means learning Christ, we've gone back to discipleship. So I wonder whether, not the only key, but one, one of the things to work on is to show your people, show it from the pulpit, show it in the church service, show it in the small group, show your leaders how to feed on the word. The navigators taught me that 40 years ago. We'd have quiet times with each other, and I'd see these these godly leaders, mission leaders, usually from America, um, how they had their quiet time. And it just gave me this model of fellowship with Christ. And so I started doing that with some of the men in the fight. And they said, no, no one's ever shown us. We didn't know you could talk back to God. We just thought you read your Bible and you say your prayers. They never thought about it. They, they were quite staggered. So you, you, I assumed things that just weren't part of their, their Christian training. Uh, in a really good church. Okay? So I know it's sort of, we started with changing the whole church culture with all those circles, then we said we're going to clarify the culture, now I'm down to one little aspect of feeding. But it's not surprising we've got there, because that's how you learn Christ, and as you learn Christ, the consequences are a sacrificial life. As you have a sacrificial life, you're going to be maturing in on mission, and the whole thing's... <laughs> so just don't... Um, forget how important it is that they nourish um, corporately, you really are nourishing each other in the world 
uh, and then individually and in small groups they know how to do that for their growth.